Well, welcome No Labels, No Limits podcast listeners. Today's guest is going to be a little bit different for you because this is very topic specific. I'm really excited for you to meet Glenn Livingston um, for a couple of reasons. One, I have consumed, and that's an intended pun, some of Glenn's content, and I'll talk to you about that in a minute, but he comes from a long line of business and psychology, and that has led him to where he is today. He is, as I mentioned, a psychologist, but he's also been the longtime CEO of multi-million dollar consulting firm, and that has serviced Fortune 500 clients, specifically in the food industry, which has its own um, connection to the work. And in his previous work, his theories and his research has been shown in periodicals like the New York Times, the LA Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, Star-Ledger, New York Daily News, American Demographics. And if that's not enough, he's also been featured on ABC, WGN, and, and CBS Radio. So with that as an introduction, let me just tell you that Glenn has recently Uh, released a book called Never Binge Again, Reprogram Yourself to Think Like a Permanently Thin Person. And it's really a great tool. So with that, I'm going to just bring Glenn into the conversation. Glenn, is there something you'd like to add to that very short introduction of a very long professional career? (laughs) Well, I'll say that it was a delightful introduction. I really appreciate it. And Maybe the one thing that's missing is that I came from a family of 17 psychologists and counselors. And my, my parents, my sister, my brother-in-law, my stepmom, my stepdad, cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandma, everybody in the family is in the business. And the standing joke is that uh, if something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. And it's, it's kind of important because, as you'll see from my story, I'm a psychologist first and foremost, and that's what's always been important to me. That's what's in my blood. That's who I am as a person. So even though I've done all this business stuff and I've got a kind of a strange approach that works, I was always a psychologist first and foremost. All right. So I think you have a pretty compelling story. So why don't you start by sharing what is it that brought you to this specific work and this specific book, because clearly you have overcome obstacles of your own to be in this moment. I likes me some food. Is that what you're saying, Sarah? (laughs) (laughs) Say, Glenn, you like to eat too. Is that what you're saying? I like to eat too. I like to eat too. I'm 6'4". I'm reasonably muscular. And when I was about 17, I figured out that if I worked out for two and a half or three hours a day, that I could eat anything I wanted to and I wouldn't gain weight. I could have 7,000 calories a day. A pizza, two pizzas, box of muffins, box of, box of munchkins, lattes, chocolate bars, whatever I wanted to, I wouldn't gain weight. And I didn't think it was a problem. The only issue was that I was spending all of my time either working out or eating and recovering from eating. But I was pretty happy about it. I was a relatively happy teenager and um, you know, young college professional. But when I got into graduate school, I got married rather young, and I moved fairly far from the school. So I had a two-hour commute each way. I had patients, I had a wife, I had responsibilities, and I just didn't have the time to work out for 30 minutes twice a week, much less three hours a day. The problem was that I discovered these foods seemed to have a life of their own, and I couldn't stop. 
couldn't stop eating them. Worse yet, I couldn't stop thinking about them. And when I would be sitting with a suicidal patient or a couple after an affair had been discovered, like very high risk situations. And for anybody who knows anything about psychology, it's not purely an intellectual endeavor. It's not like you sit and you scratch your beard and you put together a puzzle and explain to them, look, this is how this piece fits over here. And this is how you go fix your life. You, you have to be present. You have to be emotionally available. You have to lend people your soul. And because I was always a psychologist first and foremost, this bothered me more that I wasn't present. I was sitting there and thinking, when can I get to the delicatessen and dislodge my jaw so I can empty the contents of the tray or something thereof? I was looking for love in the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. And I was getting fatter and fatter. Uh, my top weight at one point was about 260, but that's when I stopped weighing myself. I think it might have been up, up around 280. And my triglycerides were over 1,100 at one point, and the doctors were telling me that I was going to die in my 30s or sooner if I didn't do something about this. And I just couldn't. I just found that the more that I tried, the worse that it got. So being a psychologist from the family of psychologists, I made a psychological assumption, which I'll tell you up front was wrong. I assumed that it wasn't what I was eating. It was what, what was eating me. I figured there was a hole in my heart, and if I could heal it and nurture my inner wounded child back to health, that I could stop overeating. So I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and I went to the best psychologists and psychiatrists and nutritionists and dietitians and anything you could think of to try to solve the problem for years. For years and years and years, I did that. I learned a lot about myself in the journey. It was a very soulful journey. There is a connection between food, overeating, and our childhoods, and you can learn a lot about yourself and your parents and what's important to you in the process of exploring that, but it didn't help me to stop overeating. I finally did two things that illuminated this for me and gave me a solution. One of them was I, I was running a marketing research organization for large companies, and they were paying me an awful lot of money to do these large studies. And I thought, well, these studies must be valuable. Why don't I do one for myself? So I constructed this study online back in the days when internet clicks were cheap. And I got 40,000 people over the course of, oh, about five years to fill out a survey about the foods that they struggled with, like what food couldn't they stop eating once they started, and the areas in life that they felt troubled by, and, uh, and a little bit of personality variables. I found a whole bunch of things, excuse me, in that study, but the three things which I thought were most significant were that people who struggled with chocolate, and I struggled with chocolate more than anything else. My binge just always started with chocolate, no matter what rules I made for myself, it seemed like chocolate always ruined it. People who struggled with chocolate tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. And I thought, well, that kind of makes sense because I was in a bad marriage at the time and I was feeling kind of lonely and brokenhearted. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things like pizza or pasta, the salty, crunchy things are like pretzels and chips, soft, chewy things like bread and bagels and pastas, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought, okay, so then if someone tells you what they struggle with, you know what area of life to look at. But let me try to see if I can use this on myself first. So I went to my mom, who was also a therapist. She passed last year. I went to my mom and I said, mom, I just did this really big study and 
you know, I've got a chocolate thing. Mom, you have a chocolate thing. How did this happen? You were there. You know, I, I forgive you for everything, but just tell me what happened. And she, she looks at me and she says, I am so sorry. She has this horrible look on her face. She says, I'm so sorry, honey. I say, why? She says, well, you know, when you were about one year old, my dad just got out of prison and idolized this man my whole life. And he was guilty and he was really doing these things. And I couldn't believe it. And I was just devastated and depressed. And at the same time, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. He was a psychologist in the army. And I thought, great, I'm going to be a single mom without a dad, without a husband. And I was just depressed. And I would sit and I would stare at the wall sometimes when you came running to me for love or food or just nurturing. And I didn't have the wherewithal to give it to you. So here's what I did. She her face looks even worse. She says, I got a refrigerator and I put it on the floor, little floor refrigerator. And I'd always keep a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in the refrigerator. And when you came running to me crying or wanting food or screaming or something, I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running over to the refrigerator, well, crawling over to the refrigerator, and you'd open it up and you'd suck on the bottle and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And see, Sarah, if, if this were the movies, if we were in the movies, mom and I at this point would have a big cry and a big hug, and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again, right? The, the problem would just go away. Well, we had a cry and a hug. This was over Skype, so it was kind of metaphorical, but we had a, had a cry and a hug. And I learned a lot about my mom, and I certainly forgave her for it. And I learned more about myself, and I felt softer, like less self-critical about the problem that I had. I understood it. So it was a good conversation to have psychologically. But the eating problem got worse. My chocolate problem got worse. And I couldn't figure out what was happening until I realized there was this crazy voice in my head. And it went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you know you're right. Your mama left a big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And if you, because she didn't take care of you when you needed it. And if you don't find the love of your life, you're just going to have to go, right, I'm binging on chocolate to fill that up. Let's go get some right now. Yippee, let's do it. And I finally realized maybe the problem isn't what's eating me. Maybe the problem isn't, you know, the traumas that I went through in my past, although I certainly went through them. Maybe the problem is this crazy voice of justification and rationalization that keeps talking me out of my best laid plans. I'm sorry, Sarah. At the same time, I was coming out of Overeaters Anonymous and I was researching some alternative addiction treatment literature. And I came across Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery. And he works largely with black and white addictions, drugs and alcohol. And I always tell people, by the way, don't use my stuff for drugs and alcohol because it's very different than Jack Trimpey stuff in that way. Um, it's much more forgiving. And you know, food is something you have to take the lion out of the cage and walk it around the block a couple of times a day, whereas drugs and alcohol are things you can quit once and for all. So it's, it's a different... It's a different road to recovery. But anyway, what, what I got from Jack Trimpey, and this is really not doing him justice, but what I got from him was, you can't love yourself out of an addiction because the part of the brain that responds to addiction is the lizard brain. It's, it's the reptilian brain. It's all the way in the back of your skull. It's the part of our brain that was there first. Whether God put it there or it evolved, it doesn't really matter. It was there first. And when the reptilian brain assesses a stimulus in the environment, it says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. There's no love there. There's no concern for the rest of the tribe or family member or herd. There's no concern for spirituality or music or art or contribution to society or purpose or meaning or children or 
anything else which is important to you. It's just eat, mate, or kill. It's the mammalian brain and the neocortex, which evolved later or were put there later, however you look at it, that have the ability to inhibit this eat, mate, or kill impulse that to, to decide, well, what impact is it going to have before you eat, mate, or kill that thing? What impact is it going to have on our tribe or our family or our herd? And what it turns out is that because it evolved later, because it's neurologically superior to the reptilian brain, it has the ability to dominate it. And it dominates it in the same way that you dominate your bladder or your testes or your ovaries. You know, there are attractive people on the street and we don't just run out and kiss them because we know that despite that very strong biological drive, that we can get in a lot of trouble if we do. So we choose to dominate it and decide under what circumstances, in what ways, and with what people do we let that out. Same thing with your bladder. You don't just pee in your mother-in-law's living room because you feel like it. You know that you have to, it's a very strong urge to pee, very strong biological urge. But no matter how strong it is, we express it in a particular way at a particular time in a particular place. And it suddenly occurred to me that I could do this with food. Suddenly it occurred to me that I should stop trying to love myself then, and I should dominate my reptilian brain like an alpha wolf dominates a challenger in the pack that said, and basically, if, if a, another pack member challenges the alpha wolf for leadership, the alpha wolf snarls at that pack member and says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? It's, this is not a game. This is a, this is a game of ruthless, this is, a, this is a ruthless domination task. It's not, a, it's not, a, not playing, certainly not loving your interview child back to hell. And I thought, okay, this is crazy, but what do I have to lose? And this was almost 30 years after my addiction started, right? I was, well, yeah, I guess I was uh, like 45, something like that. I'm 54 now. And this is an embarrassing part of the story. But as a sophisticated psychologist with all these degrees and all these publications and millions of dollars of consulting behind me, what finally worked for me in the end was deciding that I was going to call my reptilian brain my inner pig. Not to be confused with a real pig. Real pigs are very sweet animals. They need our help in the world. This was my ruthless, it's more like a wild boar that just would destroy all of my goals, anything that was important to me for one more bite of pig slop, which would be the things that I decided I was not going to eat, which were off of my diet or food plan. I decided I had to make very bright lines in the sand so I could make it like quitting drugs or alcohol. Uh, it didn't mean that I actually had to give up everything. But so, for example, I would say, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I will only ever eat chocolate on a Saturday or Sunday. Very clear line of the sign. That way, if I heard something in the back of my head that said, oh, Glenn, you've exercised enough. You can afford it. You deserve a little chocolate. Let's go get some. Or, you know, Glenn, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and that grows on a plant. So chocolate's kind of a vegetable. I would say, my pig is squilling again. I don't want chocolate. My pig does. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as embarrassing as that is for a sophisticated psychologist to say, it gave me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up, remember who I was and the kind of relationship I wanted to have about food at those times. And, um, and I slowly but surely recovered. It wasn't, it wasn't a miracle. I don't mean to say that I was instantly cured, but I, I had hope. I had power. I had enthusiasm again, whereas I, I'd been taught, our culture teaches us to feel despair about addiction. I've been taught to feel despair. I've been taught to feel powerless. I've been taught to feel like I was going to have to go to meetings every day and have a sponsor and have all this accountability. And I suddenly realized that it wasn't true. And oh my God, like I, I breathed a sigh of relief. 
And little by little, I experimented with different types of rules. I started to understand the difference between willpower and character. I started to understand why, why guidelines didn't work and you needed rules. And slowly but surely, I developed a system and I got out of it. I'm probably 65 to 70 pounds less than I was. And my triglycerides are fine. I'm healthy. My eczema went away. My rosacea went away. I'm a healthy, active man at 54. So So let me ask you a couple of questions. Because first of all, that is a pretty powerful story, especially just the path that you had to travel to, to let go of the the labels on yourself about being this psychologist in a family, in the family business, so to speak. I mean, yeah. that's pretty brave to to kind of take a different tact on it. That's off, you know, just different. But I, what, I didn't think I was going to publish it, but go, go ahead. Well, no, what's interesting to me is uh, as you were talking about when you finally told your inner pig, you know, like that chocolate, it, that's not who I am. I don't eat that but you had allowed yourself to say it's not weekend. I'm wondering what just even having that breathing space does to someone, you know, because you say, wow, that, that wasn't so hard to say I could revisit this on Saturday or Sunday. And who knows, Saturday or Sunday comes, you may still, you might not want the chocolate. You're not obligated to have it as one example. So, but I would like to know when you talk about willpower, character, those two things, if we could dive in a little more on those. And then the other thing you talked about, you said the word, we didn't talk about it yet, is tribe. So character, willpower, and then what the effect of tribe or community around individuals is in this environment. Okay. So willpower, tribe, and the first one was again? Character. 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 So how those interplay in the success of what you're doing. Okay. Willpower, character, and tribe. Okay. So... First of all, I use that as an example, and it's a softer example of the kind of rule that you can make that would work so that people know I'm not going to tell them what to eat. Something I discovered is that if you rely on some doctor to tell you exactly what diet to eat, then your pig is pretty quickly going to say, you know, I don't think that diet works for us. That doctor must be wrong. We're going to have to find another one. But you know what? In the meantime, we can just keep on binging. So I think that people really they should consult with their doctors. And I, I can't advise you to go against what your doctor says, but you can consult with the doctor. You can read books, read about nutrition. But ultimately, nobody's going to follow you around all day and look at what you put in your, in your mouth, right? So I think that people have to take full responsibility for what they think is healthy and what isn't. And you can create conditional rules, like I'll only ever have chocolate during the week or I will never have pretzels outside of a major league baseball park. And it turns out that making those types of rules, as opposed to waiting until your situation and not really knowing where the boundaries are, that it's a lot easier for people to comply with that than just thinking, well, I'm going to eat well 90% of the time and indulge 10% of the time. And this is the connection to willpower. Willpower, all the research says, is not like an on and off switch or some genetic gift that people have and other people don't. It's more like gas in the tank. And there are only so, there, it's, it's worn down by decision-making. Gas is burned by decision-making. And there are only so many good decisions you can make over the course of the day. I'm not just talking about food decisions. I'm talking about any kind of decisions. People have trouble resisting marshmallows if you make them do math problems before you offer them a marshmallow. So, Willpower is a fatigable muscle that's, that is fatigued by decision-making. 
a rule as opposed to a guideline eliminates the need for willpower because it, it eliminates the need for decision making. If you say, I'm going to avoid chocolate 90% of the time and I'm going to eat it 10% of the time, well, every time you're at Starbucks in front of a chocolate bar, you have to make a motor decision. Is this part of the 10% or is this part of the 90%? But if you know that Monday through Friday, I don't eat chocolate, you don't have to make any food decisions Monday through Friday. Now, what you're really saying when you say, I will never eat chocolate again Monday through Friday, and we'll talk about the words never and again because people are frightened of that afterwards, if you remind me. What you're really saying, it's not just a rule. You're really saying, you know, I'm just not the kind of person who eats chocolate during the week. You're, you're developing a statement of character, which is nothing more than a habitual way of responding to temptation and impulse when it happens so that you don't think about it. Character is why you don't kick policemen in the tush when you go outside. Character is why you don't throw old ladies off of cliffs when you have the opportunity. Character is why when you walk into a diner and there's a $10 bill on the table because the waitress hasn't seen her tip, and she says, I'll be right back, I'm going to go get your menu, and there's nobody up front, and there's no window, and there's no video camera. Character is why you don't take that $10 bill without thinking about it, because why? You're not a thief. And that woman worked hard for her money, and you wouldn't want to do that to her, and you just, that's not the kind of person that you are, even though nobody would catch you. Once you realize that, you recognize that character completely eliminates the need for willpower. I ask people, would it take them any willpower to resist that $10 bill? They say, absolutely not, because I'm not a thief. Well, it doesn't take me any willpower to resist chocolate, because I'm just not the kind of person who eats it. I evolved from, not all my clients do this, a lot of my clients make conditional rules about chocolate or bread or flour or alcohol or whatever it is, and they just stay with those conditional rules forever. So they always eat chocolate on the weekends in this example. For me personally, I found I was much happier without chocolate at all. And I just became a person who didn't eat chocolate whatsoever. We can talk about why if you want to. But um, it's a softer way to start. And people know they don't have to give anything up. They can just ask themselves, what role do I want potato chips to play in my life? What role do I want chocolate or pizza or any of the more addictive foods? The last part of your question had to do with tribe. And one of the other things I learned from Jack Trimpey was the idea that the central problem in addiction is dependency. It's the idea that we are these little children who can't be trusted on our own. And so we have to constantly report into other people. And while I do believe that having an accountability partner can help you get started, I think of it more like a training wheel. And I believe that people really need to develop that sense of independence. And I emphasize in the book repeatedly that everything you really need to recover from food addiction is right here in the is right here in this book. I don't I don't want people to feel like they need me. I do offer coaching, I do have a community, I do have a tribe that I think you might want to join, but you don't need to. Um, I had the good fortune to trade consultations with Stephen Covey just before he died. He I was, you know, I spent a lot of time in marketing and I I wanted his leadership expertise and he wanted my marketing expertise for his new website. So we traded consultations. And one of the things he taught me was this distinction between dependence, independence, and interdependence. So dependence is like being a little child. I can't do this without you. Independence is, I don't need you at all. I, I, can, do this. I can do this all on my own. 
But interdependence says, I don't need you, but I could accomplish a lot more with you. Look at, look at man's greatest accomplishments, skyscrapers and airplanes and, you know, and, and even major scientific discoveries are very rarely accomplished individually. They're accomplished by people who recognize that we can do more together. And so that's what I would really strive for. I, I believe that having a community of like-minded people around can very much enhance your ability, in this case, to stop binge eating. It, what it really does is speed it up because other, other people have had the same squeals. They've heard the same, you know, oh, we'll start again tomorrow or, oh, you're thin enough already. You could afford this or, oh, you've got too much weight to lose and you can't, um, you know, it's not even worth it because you can't lose it fast enough. Might as well just binge and what's one more pound. They've heard all the same illogical justifications in their head and they know how to, how to fix that quicker. So I can teach you the process by which to fix it on your own, but we can do it a lot quicker if you, if you work with us in our community. We have a free community. We have a paid community. We have individual coaching. So it's, it's all along that continuum. So let's circle back. You wanted to talk about the never. And again, is that part of the rules that you were talking about is having those be revisitable? If that's even yeah. a word. Yeah. So there's a paradox to the mindset required to stop binge eating. Um, and it's the opposite. It's the polar opposite of what most people are advised. Most people in our culture are advised to go after guidelines and not rules. And they're supposed to go after progress and not perfection. When, when you've made a mistake, progress and not perfection is the appropriate mindset. You only want to feel the pain of the mistake long enough to get your attention and analyze what went wrong. So you can readjust your target if you need to, readjust your aim if you need to. Then you want to let it go. It's like touching a hot stove. If you accidentally touch a hot stove, you don't want to say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well put my whole hand down on the stove and just leave it there, right? No, you say, I made a mistake. I'm glad that I felt that pain. The corollary is, I'm glad that I felt a little guilt and shame when I'm, but just a little bit. There are disorders in the physical world where people don't, their children are born without the ability to feel physical pain and they don't live more than four or five years because they can't tell when they get hurt. We can't protect them. So after a mistake, you want to be able to forgive yourself with dignity. However, when you're making a commitment, when you are pursuing a goal, a little girl who's trying to ride her bike to the top of the hill without stopping the first time, she, she has to visualize herself on the top of the hill and her mommy has to say, you know what, little Sarah, I know you can do it. I can see you up there. Can't you see yourself up there? You're just going to ride and ride and pedal and pedal and pedal. I know you're going to get there. I know you're going to do it. Not maybe I will and maybe I won't. Especially where toxic pleasure is concerned because maybe I will and maybe I won't just means I'm going to try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. So the phrase that I use is to commit with perfection but forgive yourself with dignity. If you commit with perfection, it allows you to purge your mind of all the doubt and distraction that would otherwise drain energy from the accomplishment of your goal. When Lance Armstrong sets out to win the Tour de France, he's not thinking, maybe I'll win and maybe I won't. I guarantee you that. He's thinking, I can see myself riding through there. When we get married, see, this is not without parallel. When we get married, we don't say, you know, gee, honey, I... I'm pretty sure that I can go a lifetime without, you know, sleeping with other people, but there are a lot of attractive people out there and you don't want me to lie, do you? Progress, not perfection. 
know, commitment, the nature of a commitment is 100%. And if you happen to make a mistake, you have to forgive yourself. So there's kind of a paradox. And we know that we know that there can be a part of our mind that we split off and change the rules if we need to. But we present it to our pig in the same way that we present it to a little child because the pig acts like a two-year-old. If you have a little two-year-old, you'd say to her, hey, little Sarah, I have a niece named Sarah. That's why I always use, I'm not doing that just for you. I'm okay with it. <laughs> okay. I'd say, hey, little Sarah, um, you can never, ever, 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 ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, 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 ever. Now, am I lying to her? I know that when she's seven or eight years old, I'm going to teach her to look both ways and cross the street without me. But that thought is too dangerous for her to even entertain. I don't want her darting in the street. It's too dangerous. Same thing with our pigs. When we say never, we're never going to do this again. We're defining a rule for a two-year-old. Our pigs act like two-year-olds in the face of temptation. What you might not know, what your listeners might not know, which someone like me knows from having worked in the food industry, is that the industry is trying to design hyper-palatable concentrations of food-like substances with starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. And there are billions of dollars that go into engineering a way to hit your bliss point without giving you the nutrition to feel satisfied. And so when you look at the animals, they're really short-circuiting your evolutionary pleasure buttons. If you look at the animal studies, and they were done way back in the 50s and 60s, what happens when you short-circuit the evolutionary mechanism for pleasure? You put an electrode in a rat's brain, for example, in the pleasure center, and you give them a lever that they can push, it steals their survival drive. They will push that button thousands of times per day to the exclusion of eating or nursing their young, or they'll crawl over painful electrical grades to be able to do that. They'll do anything they can to get to that substance. And that's why everybody says, well, I don't like fruit and vegetables anymore. That's why they say I could never eat healthy because I, I need this in order to survive. You don't understand. It's not even just pleasure. I need that chocolate bar to feel normal. So um, I lost track of a little bit of how I got there because I started ranting. <laughs> <laughs> it made me think about um, just the, the similarities to like a drug addiction in general, right? Because I know people in my world where, um, and I don't mean the treating of it's the same, but that skipping over things that you know that are good for you mm-hmm. because you have to, you're feeding something different. Yeah. So in the case of the rat with, you know, going and, and pushing the button to get the, the pleasure stimulation, it isn't a far cry to see how you can chemically shift something in the brain through food that does a similar thing. And it's so subtle, you wouldn't even know it, except that then you are making choices. Just like you said, I want this over, hey, who cares for broccoli, right? You almost have to relearn. You have to relearn. And what our pigs, our pigs want us to believe that we're eating for comfort. You know, we had a stressful day or we had a death in the family or, you know, some horrible thing happened to us. And therefore we need comfort food. What it neglects to say is that the way it's defining comfort food, it's taking in these concentrated sources of pleasure that hijack our pleasure systems. Really, a concentrated source, it's a supersized stimulus. There were no chocolate bars in the Savannah. There were no chocolate bars in, in the tropics when we were evolving. This is something that 
causes your nervous system to downregulate its response to normal food. Most people don't like fruit and vegetables because they've been presented with such an intense stimulation of the pleasure center through candy and potato chips and all the things that, that people go to that fruit and vegetables just don't cut it anymore. It's, it's kind of like when I lived underneath the subway, the first week I had no idea how I was going to get any sleep. And a couple of weeks later, I couldn't even hear the subway because my nervous system downregulated. The good news is, even though your pig says that you're going to suffer forever like this, it's not true because there's also a principle of upregulation. If you stop having the chocolate bar and you start having the apple, even though everyone on your body says it tastes like crap and you need the chocolate bar to survive, if you do it anyway, over the course of a few weeks, your taste buds regenerate. And you'll start not only to taste the subtle differences in flavor and find those delicious, but you'll be able to taste the differences in different species of apples. What do Gala versus Fuji versus Envy apples taste like? And you won't suffer forever. So it's just to lend full support to the notion that you brought up, you're not necessarily just comforting yourself with food. You're getting high with food. And most people don't want to think of themselves like a drug addict. And so if they change the paradigm and change the way they conceive of what they're doing to understand that they're getting high with food, then it becomes dystonic to them. It becomes uncomfortable and they want to, they want to change. So that's one of the first things that we do with people is get them to think of it differently. Well, it's, it, ties back to what you said about is that, am I that, is it my character? Am I that kind of person that uses food to get high? Because if I shift my thinking, I'm thinking, well, no, well, I'm doing it, whether it's conscious or unconscious, but the minute it's conscious, now I know. Yeah. So it's kind of exciting, I think. I'm curious because of some of the other conversations I've had and also the folks that I work with, this whole concept of the framework that you have. And I know before we went live, I asked you if you thought there was a correlation or a relationship to other areas where we're stuck and there's limitations in it. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that. If you think that this framework, and and I'll just keep saying the inner pig, right, and how that might rule are thinking in other areas of limitations, if there is a link? There are a couple of links. One of them is a very subtle and hidden form of false logic that the pig uses to fuel procrastination, to fuel negative thinking, to fuel stuckness, if you will. So for example, you might be saying, I'm, I'm abnormal. I'm not talented enough to start my own business. I'm always going to be living with a stressful boss. So I'm always going to be miserable. There'll be a negative thought stuck in your head and that's keeping you procrastinating and not taking risks or anything. Well, there's actually a hidden therefore statement behind that logic. And the therefore statement is from the pig and it goes something like, um, therefore, there's only one type of pleasure that we can count on in this life, which is pig slop. So let's go get some right now. Let's go get that chocolate or Doritos. It, can, it doesn't have to be food. It could be drugs or alcohol. It could be uh, pornography or gambling or sex addiction or uh, any, any type of artificial short-term pleasure. But the indulgent reptilian brain will look to justify the binge 
by sustaining the negative thinking. So that's one way. The other is that there are drives inside of us to preserve the status quo, to prevent taking risks like wandering outside of the tribe and doing things different than what the tribe offered us to do. Because in primitive times, that was a dangerous thing to do. And so we're very driven to stay in our safe zones. And we are also similarly driven to conform. We're frightened to be ostracized from the tribe for doing something individual or unique. And those, um, quote unquote, pigs can fuel the negative thinking also. So what I find, and I have to admit that this is newer for me. I've spent most of my life focusing on food and most of my time with clients. I work with hundreds of clients at this point on this issue. Almost all the time has been on working on food. We're only just starting to work on these other issues. What we do find is that it's necessary, rather than come up with a bit, with an affirmation or a vision board or a type of meditation, which are all great supports. I'm in favor of all those things. But we look for a behavior that we can regulate in a rules-based way. So I remember a woman who came in saying, I'm the worst mother in the world. I can't stop thinking I'm the worst mother in the world. I have to get rid of that thought. And I said, well, why are you the worst mother in the world? She said, because I... I lose my temper with my kids all the time. So I said, well, why do you do that? We worked on that a little bit. We figured out how to create a rule for her to manage her shouting. And then once she was managing the shouting, the negative thinking went away and she didn't feel stuck anymore. So the solution seems to be a behavioral solution to really find a rule that regulates a behavior just like it is in Never Binge Again. But it's, it's new to me to be working with that. So I don't want to sound too much more authoritative than I and I really am with that. Well, and see, that's the, the mark of a good professional. You don't want to be ahead of yourself in your authority. But just as a, I would say, from what you've shared anecdotally, that shows up frequently, that yeah. the behavior piece. And um, I have two questions for you. One's a comment, and I'm actually going to ask you, say that last, because I think it might lead to kind of wrapping. But as I listen to you talk, the question that comes to me is like, when you get up and you know you're doing this work with people, what is the most exciting thing for you about getting to do this type of work? The most exciting thing is giving people their lives back. Anybody that's really been stuck with overeating feels like it's ruining their lives. It seems like a good idea at the moment, like you know, having a bowl of M&Ms seems like a good idea at the moment, but then you, you kind of blew the whole day and you're spending the day recovering from it and thinking about, well... How much more should I have? When am I going to stop? How am I going to make up for it? Do I have to hide the evidence? Do I want my spouse to know? Do I have to go to the gym? Maybe I'll binge tomorrow too. And it, it overtakes your mind and the mental obsession drives you crazy. And you're not, you're not present for life. In, in mindfulness, we would call this the monkey mind. It's chatter. And what I think I've discovered is a shortcut or a hack to eliminate the monkey mind so that you can be present in life. And people tell me that they have their life back. It's not, I mean, I get notes from people who lost 200 pounds and say, oh my God, I'm going to show me before and after. And that's great. I mean, that's, you know, that pays the bills and people get attracted to that. But it's not really where it's at for me. Where it's at is I'm a better role model for my kid. I'm no longer sitting in the house alone. I got a promotion at work because I wasn't scared to go take on this new job and have more energy and excitation about it. So it's that kind of thing. It's giving people their life back. And that's why I want to help a million people a year to stop binge eating. 
I think that's so fabulous. And here's, I just want to give you some kudos for folks who haven't gone out or don't know about this book. I'm going to encourage people to read it. First of all, it's kind of fun to read. But the other piece is that Glenn has put out on his website, if you get the book, there are a ton of resources. So I'm going to ask you to talk about those. One of my favorite of the worksheets you have out there is the No Regrets worksheet. Mm-hmm. I just I I just really like that. So do you want to talk to folks about how, why you structured your book the way you did with all the downloads and the worksheets to help and say anything more about that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, the book is free for Kindle Nook or, or PDF. And if you go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red free bonus free reader bonus section and sign up for that. You'll get a free copy of the book in electronic format. You'll also see where you can get it in physical format if you prefer it or audible. What I also offered was a set of recorded coaching sessions because I know this sounds really weird in principle. I know that people are listening to Sarah and I talk about it and they're thinking, this is a psychologist and he's published all these papers and he's been in all these newspapers and he's got a pig inside of him. What? You know, it just doesn't make sense. But if you listen to the way it's implemented in practice, it's very compassionate and life-giving. And I wanted people to hear that. So I recorded a whole bunch of sessions that you took here. And then the the last thing I offer, well, it's not the last thing, but one of the three main downloads is the food plan starter worksheet, food plan starter templates. And the reason we do that is that we want people to see a set of rules that might work for any given dietary philosophy. We're diet agnostic. You can do this with low carb or high carb or vegan or point counting or calorie counting or paleo, whatever you want to do. There's a set of starter rules, which I'm not taking responsibility for. I need you to modify them to your own desires, but it's right there. I have to tell you, Sarah, you're the first person that's mentioned the No Regrets Worksheet in years. And I don't remember what it is. Can you tell me what it is? I'll tell you what it is. And this is why I mentioned it because for me, it really is that I'm going to paraphrase when I read it, like what it struck me about it. It's about seeing the work as done. So it's similar to when you're saying, okay, you're going to ha- show that little Sarah, here's the top of the hill, you're going to do it. So having it at plan is perfect. So it's basically saying, what's the step? See where you're going to be as perfect. What's the step right before that? And yes. Step right before that. Because it's so concrete that if you do that work, and in the past, as I've done that work, I just, things pop up. You're thinking it uncovers things that you didn't think about. So I just thought the worksheet was brilliant and fun. And it does require you do your work. Yes, that, that comes from a guided imagery technique that I used to offer. Actually, from my ex-wife, she taught me that. That you, um, most people plan forwards. But if you visualize the goal is already complete, your mind fills in the gaps. If you say, well, it already happened, it had to have happened, so therefore there must have been a step before that, what was it? Your mind is forced to fill in the gaps, and you will see a direct path to the goal that you couldn't have seen otherwise if you tried to plan forward because you come up on all these obstacles. So, And you can be creative with it, and yeah, I, I love that. I, I have to go back and look at where I put that in the downloads. I forgot about that. It's a, it's a great download. No, it's fun. Yeah. I like downloads because I think it helps people think differently about things. Sometimes yeah. some tools just resonate differently. But when I read that, I'm going, that's a totally cool tool. And the, having the ability to look at your different uh, food plans by type of diet or special things is a great boost for folks to, instead of saying, okay, 
where do we even begin this journey? So, so Glenn, as we wrap up, is there any final things you want to share with our audience? Well, freedom is actually on top of discipline. It's not opposed to it. Freedom sits on top of discipline. You couldn't drive anywhere you felt like if it wasn't for the discipline of the engineers who built your car and ensure that the wheels turn 30 degrees when you turn the steering wheel 30 degrees. A jazz musician can't express their soul without the discipline of practicing all the scales first. People are frightened that this is going to take away their freedom because it's so rules-based. But I find it's rules-based in the same way that knowing the rules of the road is rules-based. You have to do a little work to study it and pass your driver's test. But once you do, you have a lifetime of just driving. Most people don't have to think about the rules of the road. They know them. And it's a shame to spend a lifetime suffering at the mercy of all these industrial products when you could think through the role that you want them to play in your life, draw very definitive boundaries for them, listen for your pig or your, you don't have to call it a pig, you can call it your inner food monster or whatever you want to call it. It's just not a cute child. Listen for it to try to convince you to break it and then disempower that logic. It's a very fast, effective, and life-giving process. And I would encourage people that even though it involves a little discipline and work, that it's well worth the effort. So it's neverbingeagain.com. Push the big red button. The big red button. And big honestly, red button. it's really easy to get all your stuff. So listeners, go out and do it. And we'll put the hyperlinks down in the show notes so that people can grab it easy. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Glenn. I really appreciate it. And I know our listeners will too. Thank you, Sarah. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. We hope you like what you heard. And if you did, we ask that you go over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. If you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please be sure to share. And until next time, have a great week living a no labels, no limits, and no excuses life.